Welcome to the podcast of tech.eu, Europe's premier technology industry information portal and market intelligence platform. This is our episode number 116, recorded on April 29th, 2019. Today we're going to talk about uh, SoftBank's alleged shopping spree in Germany, about car sharing in Europe, about ICO white papers, about potentially toxic money coming from Saudi Arabia, and much more. We also have two pre-recorded interviews, uh, one with Elfie Pins from uh, Supermiro, and the other with Gila Dregev of Kuro Protocol. I'm your host, Andrei Degler, joined today, as usual, by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hello, Natalie. How's it going? Hi, Andrei. How are you? I'm doing great over here. Yeah, things are great on my end as well. How is the weather in the sunny, as far as I can see, Edinburgh? It is very sunny, and I'm looking forward to a very busy travel schedule coming up, heading to Vilnius tomorrow and looking forward to checking out their fintech scene nice that's pretty cool i have nothing to do this week i suppose but i feel that i'm really lucky that the next conference i'm going to is actually in amsterdam that's the next web conference so i'm on my home turf don't have to travel don't have to wake up too early don't have to live in a hotel just in the comfort of my own house certainly convenient indeed are there actually any big conferences in edinburgh there is. The biggest one is Turing Fest, which is in August, the oh, end yeah, of right. August this year. And please join us for Turing Fest. I'm on the advisory board and I'd love to see as many people as possible. Check out our ecosystem. Right. Uh, let's move on with the agenda then. And uh, so first, the biggest deal of the week, uh, which was it this time? Well, the biggest deal of the week, I'm going to let you cover that in your segment, Andre. Right. But in this space, I just want to give a big welcome to Voima Ventures, which is a new deep tech venture firm that was just announced today. And they'll be focusing on funding great startups from pre-seed to Series B in the Nordics. So they just raised 50 million euros, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what they're going to be funding. They're working in a lot of different areas, med tech, biotech, IoT, robotics, really kind of creative sectors. And co-founder Inka Mero, she's a real industry veteran. She's from Helsinki, and she's invested in 22 different companies previously, and she served as a co-founder in seven of them. So it's great to see more women in VC, and it looks that this will be a great new addition to the funding landscape in the Nordics. So congratulations to Voima Ventures, and I can't wait to see what's up with them coming next. Indeed, welcome to the new uh, VC on the blog, and uh, thanks for hijacking the script, Natalie. So, okay, now I'm going to cover uh, the biggest deal then. So what I was going to talk, I mean, I'm going to talk about it anyway, so it's fine. So uh, if you're following uh, funding news in Europe in general, you have probably noticed uh, the elephant in the room that is a soft bank that's allegedly invested over a billion euros in two German companies within just one week. Uh, one of the deals has been confirmed already, and the other is a bit less clear. So let's take a quick look at uh, what's going on. I think 
I will talk about the deals in reverse chronological order just to make it a bit uh, easier and uh, also uh, start uh, uh, with the, the uh, smaller one. So on Sunday, April 28th, the local German tech blog Deutsche Startups published what it claimed was an exclusive account of SoftBank investing 500 million euros in uh, Get Your Guide. And Get Your Guide, in case you don't know, is a startup that's already 10 years old and it's basically a marketplace for the booking of tourist attraction tickets and the different activities like cooking classes or uh, guided tours or uh, whatever else really. Now according to the report uh, the deal valued get your guide at 1.6 billion euros making it a freshly minted unicorn. This would be of course great news if only both sides of the deal confirmed it which they didn't. TechCrunch reached to the parties and SoftBank said that they won't comment uh, on the story at all, while Get Your Guide stated that the report was quote-unquote inaccurate, with no further explanation offered, however. Now, a logical conclusion of this would be that uh, Get Your Guide and SoftBank are indeed talking about a funding route, but it's not yet finalized. I am pretty sure that we are going to hear more about this one really soon, and uh, it is even quite possible that by the time you hear this podcast, more details will have been published. Uh, before that happens, I will definitely put the links to the latest developments in the show notes. Now, let's move on to the second deal in the funding frenzy, and uh, this is actually the biggest deal of last week. Last Wednesday, uh, we reported uh, that the Japanese giant poured 900 million euros in Wirecard, and that's a payment processing company from Munich. It's not really a startup, I would say, but it's a publicly traded company that's been around for uh, uh, 20 years already. And to be entirely honest, I didn't know that much about Wirecard before this funding round. Actually, I was thinking about it, and one of my strongest associations uh, with Wirecard is that it often sponsors really good coffee at tech events. So I have to give it that. Uh, but looks like there is definitely a story to be told here. Now, the deal with SoftBank is structured as a five-year convertible bond, which basically means that in five years, SoftBank may either be repaid by Wirecard or convert these bonds that were issued in the company's stock. So in the latter case, which is probably what's going to happen, uh, SoftBank will end up owning 5.6% of Wirecard stock. So is this Wirecard funding the biggest private investment into a German startup ever? I guess so. I mean, if we put aside the fact that Wirecard is not really a startup, as I just said, it's like 20 years old, but it seems to be the, the biggest funding round. So I, I just quickly checked uh, before uh, we started, and I think if you don't count public offerings, like uh, the one of Delivery Hero, uh, the Wirecard funding is about double of uh, the most prominent deals in Germany over the last few years, like Auto One or something like that. Which SoftBank was also involved in last year, which was the largest deal in Europe. It's, I mean, it's involved in everything, it seems, uh, and it's really, it's really interesting, but even a bit scary, I would say, to track uh, all the involvements of uh, Soviet Bank and uh, how important a player it becomes uh, on, on the market. So in case of Wirecard and uh, SoftBank, the funding part is actually pretty straightforward, as I just explained. Uh, but what's a bit more complicated is the general situation that Wirecard has found itself in at the moment. And the Financial Times has been doing a really great job covering a bunch of issues that have been raised with Wirecard by both the authorities and the public. Uh, it's been on, uh, I think, since February or something with reports coming uh, a few times a month. And it seems like something really weird uh, might 
might be going on at the company right now. Uh, long story short, uh, Wirecard currently stands accused of facilitating fraudulent transactions between Germany and Singapore. And the Singaporean police have started an official investigation into this, uh, but the results uh, have not yet been published, so it's still gonna be seen. Now, the transactions in question, uh, they happened in uh, 2018 and uh, totaled uh, 2 million euros. There were four transactions, uh, 500,000 euros each. Allegedly, uh, the transfers were part of a round-tripping scheme uh, that was first flagged by an internal uh, whistleblower. Wirecard uh, claimed that it uh, conducted an internal investigation of the matter uh, last year, but did not find any issues. So we are actually about to see whether the authorities in Singapore will agree with this uh, conclusion. In a more recent report, however, the FT also uncovered that half of the global revenue and almost all of the reported profits of Wirecard in recent years came from just three partner companies. And these companies are extremely opaque and they are located in the United Arab Emirates, in the Philippines, and uh, you guessed it, in Singapore. So the Dubai-based entity called Al-Alam uh, has contributed the most money uh, to uh, the general uh, bottom line of Wirecard, uh, but the company itself is pretty strange. It only has five uh, employees uh, listed on LinkedIn, and uh, the Financial Times uh, tried to visit its office a few times, but it was either empty or there were just a handful of uh, people working there uh, without uh, any management. There are a lot more details in the original report, of course. It's uh, 1,700 words uh, long, uh, but if you're interested, I would definitely recommend checking it out. It also has the explanation of what the uh, alleged uh, scheme is. So, Natalie, I know you're going to discuss part of uh, uh, this uh, deal uh, and its consequences in the next uh, uh, part of the podcast. But what do you think in general about uh, SoftBank's interest uh, towards German companies? You know, I think what it communicates most clearly to me is that their deal last year with Auto One Group was successful in that it has encouraged them to look at other companies in Germany to invest in. So they must be pretty happy about how, how that, that previous deal went. Um, and I think it's exciting um, in a way that SoftBank is showing such interest in German companies because it does communicate something on a global scale about the viability of the companies that we have coming out of Europe. Right. Okay, and uh, now let's move on to our first uh, interview of the day. And this is a short conversation uh, recorded by our editor, Robin Wouters, with Elfie Pince, the chief entertainment officer at uh, Super Miro. Robin Wouters from uh, Tech.eu, and I'm sitting down with Elfie, entrepreneur from Luxembourg, developing a company called Super Miro. Elfie, welcome to Brussels. What can you tell us about Super Miro? Thank you. So Supermiro is a personal assistant that uh, makes people go out. So we've launched in Luxembourg and now we just arrived in Brussels. So we are really happy to take care of the free time of uh, people from Brussels. That requires a bit more explanation. How do you help people go out? So we are crawling everything about events in the entire city and also completing the, the offer with the great spots to have brunch, to have a run and uh, everything under very uh, cool and funny brand, a uh, strong tone of voice and lots of illustration. So theoretically, um, any startup can say, we're going to crawl the web for events and present you know, personalized activities to users. So, so what makes you special? What makes you different? 
I think uh, one of our uh, strengths is the fact that we have diversified our sources to be able to really get uh, a rich content that can go from the museum to an activity for kids, uh, go where to have a run and this kind of thing. And also we are working on a profiling thing to be able to deliver the right content to the right person at the right moment. Great. One thing you didn't mention is because I just installed the application and it looks really nice. So user experience and uh, the overall design is really nice, I have to say. I'm still wondering, how do you get people to know about Supermere in the first place? Because there's so many local websites that can tell you what to do. There's you know stuff like Foursquare and whatnot. So how do you differentiate? What's your go-to-market strategy to put it in a slightly boring way? I would say that I've decided to work as much on my technology as uh, on my brand and the brand and the community that it generates around the illustration, the tone of voice and the fact that we are talking a lot, we are creating a lot of content on top of the service itself. I think it's my really go-to-market strategy. Nice. And how successful has it been in Luxembourg so far? How many users do you have? So we have 80,000 uh, users on the last uh, quarter, monthly active users. We have uh, a penetration rate of uh, 45% on the 20, 45-year-old people. Great. That's a very, very um, yeah. promising statistic, of course. Um, you just uh, launched in Brussels. Um, wh what does that mean? Uh, how do you launch in a new market? What do you do to sort of get started? And why Brussels in the first place? So technically what it means, uh, I put my algorithm on the market. Uh, then we do a little bit of improvement because we need uh, one month to be able to get a new city. And then we, we are communicating uh, about the brand and the service. Great. And which markets are you attacking next? So uh, Brussels was uh, very logical after Luxembourg because we have the same problematic about language and uh, cultural differences. Uh, then I would probably go to something more easier for me because I'm French and there is lots of potential of uh, cities about more than uh, 100,000 people. Mm. And uh, that could be a, a very good market for us. Uh, you also just uh, raised a small seed round of funding. So what can you tell us about that? Well, I would say that it's um, mainly local uh, corporate investors that in invested in uh, in our adventure to support and to be able to develop the international version of the project, not staying uh, with our technology just in Luxembourg. Great. And how much did you raise? Eight uh, eight hundred thousand. Great. So that sets you up for you know at least uh, trying out new markets. Uh, how big is your team right now? We are uh, ten people. Great. So what I'm wondering about, like, because I've been to Luxembourg recently to check out the startup scene, obviously it's a small country and a small city. So the ecosystem is really small, but I'd love to get your insider perspective on sort of the local ecosystem. Is if it's easy to be a startup in Luxembourg in the first place and how do you manage to sort of scale your business outside? I would say that uh, Luxembourg environment is quite uh, good because at the end it's very small. So to test a product on the market, it's a very, very good base. The environment is very dynamic in terms of uh, startup ecosystem. There is lots of uh, recent, uh, recent um, things that are going on, uh, apero discussion, uh, meet, uh, lots of co-working space since the, the last five years. I don't know how many co-working space just open in the city. Uh, then I would say that um, the fact that um, I would say salary are uh, high. So that could be uh, something complicated to deal with when you are a startup. And that's also what I noticed when I was there because the cost of living is so incredibly high in Luxembourg. It's very difficult to work so, sort of on a startup salary. And so how do you manage to attract people to, to work for Supermere? 
for me, it's uh, quite simple. Half of my team is just a spontaneous uh, application uh, because of the brand, because of everything I've yes. told you before. Uh, for the engineers, it's a bit more complicated. But again, we have to deal um, with competition who are the big banks that are offering very good package that a startup doesn't offer. So we have to find people with the uh, entrepreneur spirit and uh, that really wants to make a big project and evolve and see what's the impact of what they are doing every day on the project itself. And I think that's why they are working with a startup like us. So where do you hope to see yourself? Let's say, I'm not going to say five years because in startup world, that's an eternity, but let's say in one year. I I would like in one year to have a, not such a big, big team, but to be able to, to have capitalized on Brussels, for example, to have very good uh, results on Brussels. Uh, that will uh, comfort me uh, on the fact that uh, Luxembourg, it works, Brussels, it works, so we can continue our adventure. Great. Well, I don't have a, f a ton of free time, but I'm really looking forward to using Supermira to at least fill the little free time that I have here in Brussels. Alfie, thank you so much for joining and uh, best of luck with Supermira. Thanks to you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Welcome back to the podcast of Tech.eu, episode number 116. It's still myself, Andrew Degler, and Natalie Novik. Uh, Natalie, it's your turn to talk about the stories from the past uh, week. Uh, what did you want to explore? Yeah, so this week I wanted to talk a little bit about a few recent deals that we've seen in the car sharing space. For whatever reason, there was a lot of movement in automotive last week. We learned, especially from the EU, kind of their, their result about choosing Wi-Fi over 5G in the automotive sector. But in car sharing, this is a space that I've really liked looking at because it has a real tangible impact on how we live. And we see the changes happen kind of very in, in real time. And if there's anything that we can do to get more cars up the road, it's the better. And you might recall earlier this month, we talked with Nicholas Brusson of Blah Blah Car about some of the efforts that they're doing in this space. Also, the deals announced last week really show kind of the extent and the scope of the different things that are happening in European car sharing. So I felt like it was a great time to have a closer look. The first deal I want to highlight is the huge acquisition of France's Drivey by U.S. competitor Gitaround for about $300 million. In any other week without the soft bank investments, this would probably be our lead story. And Drivey was founded in 2010 and was Europe's largest car sharing service, which let you rent out your own car while you weren't using it. At the same time Drivey was getting started, though, Gitaround was being founded in the U.S., so for the two companies to come together, it means they've come and really developed a very kind of beneficial partnership here. After this acquisition, Gitaround will now be available in over 300 cities worldwide. We'll have access to 11,000 cars. In the coming months, though, the driving name will go away and the company will be fully absorbed into Gitaround. However, the deal seems to be a really great one for everyone involved. Drivey's founder and CEO, Pauline Demerthon, will stay with, on with the company as Gitaround CEO of Europe. So I hope that works out for them. And the next deal I wanted to talk about this week is a different sort of car sharing project, this one in Poland. Last week, we learned that over 50% of the Warsaw-based Ford Mobility has been acquired by PGE NOAA Energy. So founded in 2015, For Mobility was the first car sharing platform in Poland. And what's nice about their offering is the quality of cars that they have on their platform. They're pretty affordable and you have really great selection. 
And for people that like to drive or where public transport is limited, there's only a few cities in Europe that really have local car sharing platforms that really make owning a car truly optional. And Warsaw definitely is one thanks to Ford Mobility. This deal was worth just under 3.4 million euros, and the investment will be used to scale to new cities and purchase more vehicles. So for our Polish listeners, look forward to new car sharing options coming to you soon. The final deal in the mobility space that I wanted to talk about this week takes us both to London and to Russia, where the awkwardly named ride-hailing app Wheelie has raised a new round of investment of $15 million. Don't let the cheesy name of the company be deceiving because what they offer is an experience that, according to business insiders Allison Millington, that, quote, made me think it's possible for money to buy happiness. So I found this pretty enticing as what really is, is a truly luxurious private chauffeur service. And they originally launched in London in 2012, but then they had to exit and they've returned again in 2018. And this driving service aims to provide clients with an unparalleled experience in the vehicle. Drivers are enlisted to follow a specific code of conduct, and the company requires at least three years of previous chauffeur driving experience. Also, their drivers must pass multiple tests to join their platform, including driving tests and etiquette tests. And according to the company, only one in four Uber Black drivers will pass the exam to actually get on their platform. What might be the best part about Wheelie, though, is that it seems to cost less than you think, and the rides are just starting at just 12 pounds. And I'm really kind of curious what sort of experience this is. According to TechCrunch, Wheelie has already captured about 11% of bookings in London, and it seems that there's really an appetite for this kind of service. It certainly piques my interest. And this summer, Wheelie will be coming to Paris, so if you're there, that might be something to check out. And sometimes you just want new tech that makes you feel special. And this sounds like something that might definitely be worth trying out. That is, if you aren't already taking an electric scooter. What do you think, Audrey? <laughs> do you want to take Wheelie for a ride? I don't know. I'm not I'm not really sold. I'm not into sort of luxurious uh, private chauffeur experiences. What it does sound to me, though, it's it, it sounds very similar to the initial offering of uh, Uber Black. And I think at the very beginning of uh, Uber Black, it was like a very similar niche and it was a very similar sort of approach that uh, they had, right? Exactly. And so, right, Uber really wanted to kind of expand their offerings and they've changed and tried to become a more a kind of democratic, open to everyone company. But this is an experience that kind of takes the Uber to an additional level. And apparently the quality of vehicles they have on this platform are things that you would never find on Uber. And I've just never had an experience like that. And it kind of sounds like fun. Right. Yeah, what, what was interesting, I also read this uh, story that uh, you linked to on uh, Business Insider. What's interesting is that Wheelie actually costs uh, about the same or even less than uh, Uber Black. So I really am not sure about the business model there. And the writer from TechCrunch also was kind of somewhat sounded a bit skeptical that they would be able to find enough wealthy individuals that would be willing to make this kind of their private driver. But it seems like 
with this new investment, there really is an appetite for something that is a little bit special and different. But it's piqued my interest enough to want to try it out next time I'm down in London. Yeah, with a ride to Heathrow or Gatwick that costs 80 pounds, it's definitely not something that uh, a lot of people would be using every day for sure. But then again, I mean, if you are two or three people, then it becomes uh, at least comparable to the price of, uh, say, the express train uh, that you have uh, going to the same destinations. So suppose why not? Yeah, and I kind of want to know a little bit more about these etiquette tests and the the previous driving tests of, of the drivers. They sound like very accomplished individuals. As far as I understand, the main part of the etiquette test uh, would be just not to start conversations uh, with the uh, passengers. <laughs> that might be perfect for you, Andre. Are you accusing me of uh, not liking to talk to people? <laughs> Talking to you right now. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to hold my silence. Okay, your etiquette test is passed. In the meantime, let let us move uh, further uh, with the agenda cuz we've got the second interview and uh, this one is uh, with Gila Dregev uh, from uh, Cura Protocol. It's a pretty interesting startup. One of the most interesting things for me personally in this startup was the fact that they are working on a currency, a digital currency that is not a cryptocurrency. So they consciously decided not to use blockchain for their solution, which definitely appealed uh, to me. And uh, that definitely made uh, their pitch uh, stand out of the crowd. Now, let's listen to this uh, interview and uh, be back in a bit uh, for events and uh, recommendations. Hello, uh, this is Andre Degler from tech.eu. Today, I am catching up with uh, Gilad Regev, the co-founder and CEO of uh, Cura Protocol. Hi, Gilad. Uh, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to talk today. Hi, Andre, and uh, thank you for having me. So, Cura Protocol, uh, can you please start with explaining what it is and what goal you're trying to achieve here? Yes. So, the goal we are trying to achieve is pretty simple. We want to fight the climate change. And um, we understand that what causes uh, climate change is uh, humanity behavior. And that's something that we would like to change. We would like people to behave in more, in more sustainable way. History showed that um, really the only thing that is working is uh, to change people's behavior, is uh, our rewarding systems. And we decided simply to pay people uh, with uh, our digital currency, the Cura, uh, to change their behavior into sust more sustainable behavior that can be uh, walking, that can be using a uh, public transport, that can be eating more sustainable food, recycling, education, and uh, so forth. Right. And uh, I remember first time when I saw uh, Cura Protocol's uh, pitch in my email, uh, it uh, mentioned specifically that Cura is not a cryptocurrency. So was it a conscious decision not to use blockchain here and make it non-crypto? Uh, absolutely. Actually, we had a very long discussion around it, and we are also having a, a strong backhand up of uh, economists to, uh, to build our monetary policy. And there are a few reasons why we decided not to have the Curo on a distributed ledger, but to work with a centralized ledger. Reason number one is that decentralized uh, uh, currencies are consuming a lot of energy. And we do not want to create a system of fighting climate change, which is 
by creating a consumption of additional uh, energy like the entire of Europe. Uh, reason number two is we would like the, the Curo to be uh, used for a daily basis, uh, which means that you can pay with Curo on po- point of sales in the supermarkets, in the coffee shops. And the, the, crypto, uh, um, um, the crypto industry or ecosystem cannot, cannot allow that to happen because of uh, very slow um, uh, transactions. Uh, you would not like, no one will allow to wait for one minute or one and a half minute for transaction to take place. Number three, um, there is an issue, I think, for the crypto, for the crypto world, there is um, a public opinions or there are split of public opinions about whether this is a bubble or not. And we don't want to go there. We, we are not interested in the argumentation of whether the Bitcoin was, was a bubble or not. We want to fight climate change. This is our purpose. And we say, hey, money works like the regular money works. Why don't we just stick to what works for the last 150 or what, whatever years and make it simply a digital currency, which behaves like dollar, euro, etc., etc. But we are not going to to print to print any, right? So how exactly does Cura work then? So let's assume that you have um, a solar system on your on your on your um, a rooftop. Um, we are now connected. We actually started to work now with uh, one of the largest solar solar uh, companies in Germany called Zone. Uh, we are connected to the API of your solar system through Zone. Our system, our backup system is, is getting information that your system now produce one kilowatt hours. And against that, with our application, you're receiving on, so to speak, your wallet, a one euro, um, or 1.2 euro. We, we can discuss about exactly how do we decide about, about, um, how many euros you're getting for what action. Another example, if you're a girl that, uh, going to study in, um, in developing uh, countries, uh, which we think it is very, very important from sustainability point of view, we will g- pay for your family one euro per day or five euro per day for you to study. And at the same time, you, the girl, will receive what we call Cure Kids. We can discuss more about that. The same amount of Cure Kids, so you can have savings of Cures for, for your future. And, and then... Once you receive and you accumulated the Kuros, you can then, the whole idea is that you can either send, receive them from your friends or, or buy online from online merchants, or as I mentioned, on, on, on point of sales. So do these point of sales, do they have to be equipped in any special way to uh, be able to accept Kuros? Uh, not at all. So we are looking for, for different different uh, solutions. Uh, one of them is a QR codes, which is becoming more and more popular. We also have first discussions, like initial discussions with one of the credit cards uh, companies, one of the largest credit cards. So simply issuing Q, uh, uh, um, credit cards nominated in QROs. So we're not trying to revolutionize anything from, from that point of view. The whole idea is to create a massive change of people's behavior, and that, that is our goal.
So uh means that you basically control the supply of uh, curers. So how do you do that? And basically how many curers are there? And do you want to issue more when you need uh, how it's controlled? Okay, so it this is really an interesting point of view. We are not the suppliers of curers. We are only the custodians of curers. And that's the beautiful, you mentioned the crypto, the crypto uh, uh, currencies before. The, the white paper of Bitcoin is a very beautiful, is a very beautiful idea of having a distributed solution. And what we are saying is that Kuro is actually probably one, one of the most distributed economies you can think of because from our point of view, seven billion plus people can make a daily basis activities that our job and our only job, our only responsibility is to receive data, to verify that data, and actually issue the cure that belongs to you. You did the actions, the cure belongs to you, not to us. So that's, that's, that, that is our way of thinking. It's also a very, um, it's a very a, economy with very high equality because the same actions that you are doing, let's say you are taking 1,000 steps or an action that a girl will do it somewhere in Africa, or Bill Gates, for the same actions that you will take, you will receive the same amount of cure with the same value. So we are only serving humanity and not the ones that actually uh, uh, make uh, uh, making the decisions for people how much should they get. Of course, we should have certain certain caps. And the reason why we need caps to bring in caps to uh, um, to, to to the system is because you want to make sure that the value of the euro is stayed is stayed in balance so we want to actually to peg the euro probably to the dollar so 5 euros for the dollar we don't want that value to be to be neither neither inflated nor nor deflated i don't want to get rich out of so to speak appreciation of of currencies as i mentioned and the focus is fighting climate change so we we do have now different mechanisms and discussions of how such a currency uh, should be balanced. It is not an immediate problem. We do not see that as an immediate issue. We'll have to look into that once really a massive amount of people are joining, but we're already uh, planning for that. One more thing which I would like to add is how do we make decisions about how many euros you're going to earn from, from which activity. And that will be done no, again, not by Cure protocol, not by us. We'll have a separate, a, what we call a protocol committee. We already, um, appointed the head of that committee. Uh, it's Gil Friend. He's the ex uh, sustainability officer of Palo Alto. And Gil is now working to assemble individuals and working with some of the finest a research institute, sustainability research institute that is, the likes of Rocky Mountain Institute, a project a Drawdown and and few others, in order for them to join. And that protocol committee will actually tell us as as the operational company how many euros we should uh, uh, we should um, reward for what activity. Right. This is uh, this is quite interesting. Uh, so. Uh, have you raised funding yet? And how? Uh, what's your business model actually? 
Yes. So we we raised we raised them um, to date. We raised the six hundred fifty thousand euro. Uh, sorry, dollars. We are currently um, in a fundraising mode of seed. We are very proud to to and we can announce that the last investors that came in is uh, Tom uh, Preston Werner. He's um, he's the co-founder and a uh, first CEO of GitHub. Tom, by the way, was is also a, a board member in the company. And he is, um, by the way, one of the first who said work on a centralized ledger and not, and not this distributed one. And that's quite interesting when it comes from a person that with his uh, co-founders created one of the most um, open or, or probably the biggest open source company in the world. Uh, our business model is, is very simple. We are going to um, take 5% issuing fee in Kuros each time Kuro is being issued. And then since we have a go-to-market strategy working with partners, we're also going to have a business model of uh, licensing fees and 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 the uh, services for our partners because at the end of the day, we are making their product, we're subsidizing their product for their customers. So going back to the example I gave with uh, with uh, with Zonen, we actually calculated to Zonen that their their systems can be far more attractive, as much as twenty to twenty five percent cheaper, so to speak, uh, by uh, them entering into the into the ecosystem of of the Curo and assuming that the Curo is accepted everywhere uh, at at the rates that we discussed. So this is really a very powerful tool, and therefore more and more uh, companies and partners are are talking to us about joining joining the the program. Right. Is there anything that you already can buy with Curious today? Not yet. Not yet. We are <laughs> we we just started our pilot. So so we'll, we we started our operations uh, last August. We worked um, so far. What we did, we worked on um, on uh, our beta on our app beta um, and we started the pilot with Zone and literally I think 10 days ago yes uh, so we onboarded their first their first uh, first their employees we are working now with their employees and 29th we are is the is the milestone to onboard their first end users in parallel to that we are of course working with uh, uh, onboarding merchants, uh, both online, offline, and this is part of what the team is now doing. Great. So uh, the last question I wanted to ask is that you're talking about uh, this sustainable behavior of uh, people first of all, but how about the corporates and the industry? Uh, I would I would assume that they are the biggest offenders with the climate change, aren't they? Can you do anything for them as well? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, for us, we would like to work with everybody. With, with individuals, with families, with cities, with countries, and of course with, with, uh, with heavy industries. The idea will work equally everywhere because once the Kuro is accepted and once the Kuro has value and, and you are now, for example, a heavy producer of metal like ArcelorMittal, will say, hey, ArcelorMittal, if you now change the socio-energy to renewable energy, we will actually pay you for every kilowatt hours that your system is produced. Hence, we're actually subsidizing that energy for them, assuming now that ArcelorMittal, because the cure is being accepted, 
can pay their salaries, can pay their their or at least part of their salaries, part of, to 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 their suppliers, etc. Suddenly they can they they can be part of it. So the whole idea of the economy that we are trying to create is a positive and rewarding economy. We are not judging no one. We are not we are not going into politics. We're saying everyone that wants to join, including the oil companies, that on the parts that they are willing to work for sustainability, will reward them as well. Right. So are you basically an alternative to carbon credits that we have in Europe? It's exactly the other way around. It, it's really a very interesting question that you ask. And, 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 and we have carbon credits globally. Carbon credits started many, many years ago with a big, big hope. And carbon credit uh, never, well, there were some short period where it did, it did um, um, uh, took off. But I remember the days when the target was, in order for that to be effective, people were talking about $120, $130 per ton. I think the average today, well, it depends, of course, where you are. But I think we can say that in Europe, you're probably talking around $25 or euro per, per, per ton. And that just shows us that, that a punishment system, because carbon is a punishment system, it doesn't work. And why it doesn't work, to my understanding, is because, okay, yes, you, you did pay the tax, but what you are doing when you're paying the tax, you simply can roll that cost down to the value chain. So whoever produced uh, whatever metal I have on my, on my desk now, that paid that carbon when I pay when I bought this phone and there is metal in this phone actually at the end of the day I paid that carbon so there is no incentive to those that producing the carbon to reduce it because by m- us buying phones and I'm not suggesting that we should stop buying phones we actually allowing this carbon to be produced so we really wanted to reverse that and say hey Let's forget from punishment systems and let's push to rewarding systems. And, and again, if you look at the history, without subsidies, neither, neither wind nor solar uh, um, uh, um, energy would be here. I remember when, when solar just started, you looked at $40 per kilowatt hours. Today, in some, in some places, depends where, it's probably going down to six cents or seven cents or, or eight cents and we would never be there without subsidies there is a very interesting uh, um, um, uh, experiment that made in israel in israel no one will give their car keys like nobody people are not willing to do that they're really very attached to their cars and then the, the, the government said hey we will pay you if i remember correct the equivalent of of 500 or 600 euro per year to not use your car and that that experiment at at certain point was stopped because too many people wanted to to um to be part of of that of that experiment and it, and it was not budgeted so i think that it's it's a way it's it's a change and it's a way of thinking that we want to bring in and it's also a little bit of hey let's let's look at things from a positive perspective and not from a negative one Let's stop with the nose. Let's stop with this is not allowed. You want to eat meat? I'm not going to judge you. But if you will not eat meat, I will pay you for that. And you will make your own decision. If you, if you want to have, our goal is to make sure that every 
family will have the equivalent of 100 to 120 euro dollar a pound swiss francs whatever that is and that is a lot of money per per family we 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 figure out from a professor in the milken institute that that will affect 65% of the american population and that is a lot so that's that is where we are coming from right that's a fair point. That's a very big goal. So, Gilad, thank you so much uh, for talking to me today and uh, good luck with the uh, cure and uh, everything. Take care. Thank you so much. And we are back uh, with uh, Tech.eu podcast number 116. And it is time to talk about uh, events. Natalie, you have uh, a lot of uh, uh, stuff lined up uh, for next few weeks, but what should we all be looking forward to? Right. So first event I want to highlight this week is the Craft Conference, which is being held in Budapest, Hungary from May 7th to 10th. And the Craft Conference is predicated on this initiative that software delivery, craft really matters. And so they put together four days of events that bring together a number of international speakers and people holding workshops to help software developers build their toolkit. So this event aims to serve as a, quote, compass on new technologies and trends, end quote, for software professionals. And at the end of the event, which really is kind of a sweet thing, everyone gets to go hiking in the hills and caves around Budapest. And I really enjoy going to these really um, in-depth tech events. And I there's some excellent people that will be on stage speaking there. So if you're a developer or if you work in tech and you don't know very much about the development process, I think there's so much to be gained um, by informing yourself and learning more about what the process of software building looks like. And this looks like a great event to um, kind of take part in. So the Craft Conference in Budapest. And the next event I want to highlight this week is held on May 13th through the 17th of, in Newcastle um, in the north of the UK. And this event is called Newcastle Startup Week, and it is held in conjunction with Startup Safari Newcastle. And what it is, is really kind of a five-day celebration of entrepreneurship in the north of England. And I wanted to bring this event to the attention of everyone on the podcast because the organizer, Paul, and his great team have put together something super special. And it's a true celebration of entrepreneurship and startup spirit. And it's just an event to kind of bring the ecosystem together and kind of get everyone excited about building companies and kind of give them the ambition to do so. And they brought in a number of international speakers, but the real highlight is the speakers from their own community, giving these local heroes kind of a platform to inspire the next generation. And they've put so much work into making this an excellent event and to make something really special. And if you've never been to Newcastle, I really recommend you to come take in what will be such a great event. And I was in Newcastle a few weeks ago, and I was just blown away by the talent and the spirit and the really great energy there. Um, so that might be something you would want to put on your calendar. So if you're looking for more things to do this month, check out the event section of our website. And if you have a suggestion to add, please let us know in the show notes. It sounds like a great plan as if we didn't have enough events in May, right? Yeah, May is a real tough one because there's so many things you could possibly be doing this month. And I know you, me, and Robin will all be at different in different countries at the same time um, attending events this month. Uh, but there's just so many great things on. 
Um, and still, we're not going to be able to cover all the events that we've mentioned uh, today and in the last uh, two episodes of the podcast. This is just amazing how spring brings brings the sprouting of all those uh, conferences across the continent. I would uh, rather really have them spread more evenly over the year just to be able to go to more of them. <laughs> Same. Definitely. In April, it seemed like that second half of April, it really kind of slowed down for a little while. And come on, let's move some of these May events around. Yeah, sure. If you are an event organizer, really think about uh, uh, the rest of the events and try to think about the rest of the month in the year. We have 12 of them. Now, let's move on uh, to the recommendation part. And uh, uh, I'm going to talk today uh, really quickly about uh, a piece on decrypt media i actually had never heard about this uh, media outlet before but it looks nice and the piece is called uh, confessions of a white paper writer so you've probably guessed it it's about white papers for startups that want to raise money on ico and as one would expect there are a lot of shady startups trying to raise money on ico and they all need white papers so the story puts together a few accounts uh, from people who were involved or are involved at the moment in this sort of writing and uh, these people have seen firsthand how companies include fake numbers in their reports or violate the intellectual property of other companies uh, or do anything uh, around that. And sometimes it turns out a company wouldn't really even know uh, what to write in the white paper so they would basically tell the supplier to quote write whatever unquote. Uh, now, as the second part of this recommendation, however, I will link to a blog post that's a response uh, to the Decrypt Media story, and uh, it's written by Rebecca Rachmani, who appears to be a legitimate ICO white paper writer, and uh, she talks about her own approach to the process and the clients and how things are not as bad as one might think. The piece, uh, the latter piece, is a little bit uh, self-promotional from my taste, but I think it's uh, still worth reading even if uh, just uh, to keep the opinions uh, balanced. Uh, Natalie, did you read any of the two? What do you think in general of uh, white papers for ICOs? I haven't had a chance to read each of these pieces, but what I think is very troubling is the white paper is designed to build and facilitate trust with potential customers or buyers of, of, these, of these tokens. And it seems like it's a place where it's being used to kind of advance false narratives and kind of really trick people into believing that something is legitimate that's not. And I find that very troubling. And I think, especially now in 2019, more people are aware of a lot of this illegitimate things happening around token sales, but it does taint a lot of the industry with um, when you have excellent companies, it, it can be hard to evaluate and hard to vet. Um, and I think that this kind of really brings that, um, makes that more, quite more transparent. Yeah. I also understand that it's a huge industry, the whole ICO writing thing. If you think about how many of those uh, things have happened, I'm just wondering how many of the writers actually have been paid in tokens rather than uh, uh, actual currency and uh, how much they actually ended up uh, getting in terms of actual money. You know, that's a really good question. And I imagine there's a lot of quite a probably a high percentage of them that have been paid in tokens, which might probably most likely be not worth very much anymore. Um 
And and I think it's it's really unfortunate because you have this document. It's it's so hard to build trust online and kind of having transparency and, and being credible to it is the only thing we can really do a lot of these cases. So I think I think it's really um pulling back the curtain is important. Um, but it's it's unfortunate when you see how many people are kind of peddling these false narratives. If you think about things that have contributed to killing the trust online, I think crowdfunding and ICOs have definitely contributed, if not the most, then a lot. Now, enough of uh, that. Uh, what did you want to recommend this week? Yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit more about those soft bank investments. And in light of the funding deals that you introduced earlier, I thought, you know, it's kind of important to talk about where this money comes from. These are huge rounds. And while it's exciting that European tech is attracting such great, huge investments, we can't forget that the SoftBank Vision Fund is partly funded by the Saudi Sovereign Growth Fund. And in this podcast last year, we did a segment about how what does it look like, the Saudi investment into European tech? And with the announcements of the last few days, things have really changed in the landscape quite a bit. And at the time, SoftBank investment and in turn Saudi investment was pretty light in Europe. And there wasn't much that was being said about it. Their narrative has been a little bit louder in the U.S., since that time, I've had a number of conversations with different people in the ecosystem about this. And the consensus that I've really been getting from the people I've been discussing with is that it's important to talk about this money um, and to learn a little bit more about the ethics behind it. And I've linked to a previous podcast as well um, to a blog blog post written earlier this month by Jason Calcanis, who's a well-known Silicon Valley angel investor. And he was one of the first investors in Uber and a raft of other startups that you might know of, including Robinhood and Calm.com. I linked his post because he just published something um, entitled, It's Time to Boycott Saudi Money, aka the Vision Fund. And given his investment in Uber, he's also someone that's directly benefited and will continue to benefit from Saudi investment in tech. But he makes some compelling arguments about why maybe we should reconsider for human rights issues. And maybe we should think twice about accepting vision fund money, or at least understanding where this money comes from. Others from the European tech space have also questioned it, and I've appreciated hearing from Robbie Boucherie of Pirate Global, who highlights that this is there's a number of really complex questions about this that it's important to discuss further. And there's also another argument that I've heard from a number of people on different sides that say it's perfectly fine to accept the funding if we're going to do something good with it. And I'm not trying to come down on one side or the other. Um, certainly, we need more private investment into European tech. But what I'm trying to say is that it's important to at least understand all the angles and the ethics of accepting funding from the sources that that we do. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how pension funds were interested in becoming more involved in funding European tech and kind of how supporting kind of retirement funds of individuals might be a, a, a more ethical um, way of accepting um, venture capital funding. But it's really up to you to decide. But an important thing is to think about where this money comes from. And so we've linked to a few things that you can make up your own mind. And I think that's really the most important thing to do here. Since Europe usually deals with a lot of these kind of questions in a bit of a different way than the US, which usually means more regulation, do you think it's going to be regulated in any way or could or should be regulated anyway? 
What's really interesting is that Europe recently has highlighted a number of Saudi transactions as being fraudulent and especially with in terms of arms sales and things like that. But Europe is still trading with the, the Saudi state. So I don't know if we're going to see regulation in that space. And of course, it's also important to, to highlight that these types of transactions are happening in the U.S. all the time, and they're often not questioned. But I don't necessarily think that, that that's okay. And I think it's important to at least have a conversation about it, especially in light of some of the, the conflicts that Jason brings up in his really excellent blog post. So it's just something that I think it's important to understand what the sources of this funding is coming from. And if that's something that, that you're accepting of, then that's great. But it's it's important to, to really know what this landscape looks like. And with so many conferences and events uh, coming up in May, I would really be happy to have uh, uh, to hear this sort of conversation also happening on stage. There are going to be so many brilliant people uh, who definitely should have uh, something to say about it. Excellent. Yeah, and and I think I think that's a great point, and I would love to invite conference organizers to take that up if they if they um, would be so keen to do so. But there's one other thing I want to talk about this week, and it's about European Parliament elections. For those of us in Europe, it's important to remember next in end of May um, there will be a new vote for the European Parliament, and to not and to not forget to vote. And so I wanted to share a voting guide that was put together from Allied for Startups. Um, It's in the show notes, and they've been asking some really important questions of the candidates who are running for office about what their plans are for the startup community. So I'd encourage you to check that out as well to see what they're working on um, and to inform yourselves a little bit more about who might be um, the person to earn your vote. And if you are too lazy to do that, you can just check how these people voted for copyright directives and uh, uh, base your vote on that. Again, I get to talk about both blockchain issues and copyright directive in the same podcast. It's going to be my bingo from now on. Anyway, it's about time to wrap it up for today. Uh, This is it for today's episode. I do hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you are not a subscriber yet, do subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. If you're listening on iTunes, please take a minute right now to leave us a review. This will help others find the show and this will be very important for us. Tell a friend or colleague for whom it will be relevant about the podcast and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse. That is uh, sound-pulse.com Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at andri at tech.eu and natalie at tech.eu Natalie, such a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks a lot for taking time to join. Thanks so much, Andri. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.